No one gets to choose their parents. We all inherit a story, like it or not. But we can choose what to do with that story. I'm Mike Joseph. The story my parents gave me was full of life and loss. Wars, genocide and ethnic cleansing. What should I do with that legacy? What would you do? I was 50 before I did anything at all. Welcome to Keys, a troubled inheritance. Israel Gold, my grandfather, believed in both parts of Britain's 1917 Balfour Declaration, which had moved him to buy both an English dictionary and an Arabic dictionary. The promise to the Jews and the promise to the Arabs. But Ben-Gurion only wanted the promise of a Jewish homeland. And now Britain had proposed the means, the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. Today such solutions are banned in international law, but in 1937 forced transfer of populations were equally envisaged by dictators, nationalist movements and democracies. In November 1937, Hitler discussed the Jewish question with Goebbels at length. Goebbels wrote in his diary, The Jews must be expelled from Germany from the whole of Europe. That'll take some time still, but it will happen and must happen. The Führer is firmly committed to this. The Nuremberg race laws were just one way that Nazi Germany was forcing Jews to leave, Israel Gold amongst them. Other methods would follow. My grandfather wrote again to his brother Josef, already in Palestine. He uses Aliyah, the Zionist term for emigration to Palestine. Dear Josef, our Aliyah affair is continuing. I can only emigrate legally and I have to wait so long till the transfer procedure is finished. But you can't do it differently. It can take a year or more, and I hope there will be peace again in the Mediterranean. It is not really possible to take goods from here, only items for personal needs. The best, of course, is cash. Therefore, first wait and see. Having made the hard decision to uproot his family from Germany and take them to Palestine, the growing turmoil in the British Mandate Territory became his greatest worry. His vision of coexisting peacefully Jews and Arabs together was looking increasingly unlikely. I'm informed daily about the position in our homeland. I can easily imagine how the economy is suffering from conditions like that. How are you now? Have you got a job? Nevertheless, to be out of Poland's hell. I don't want to be there again at any price. I was in Stanislaw recently for some days, but the Jews' position there hurt me a lot. The misery there is enormous. Late in 1936, his tone grew darker still. I still don't know what I'm going to do in the future. It's hard to decide finishing life and business here. I'd like to wait until the children are grown up and have finished their studies. Nobody actually knows what is the right thing to do. It does sound like he's preparing to change his mind. And then they had the shattering news that they could only take 
very small amount of capital with them. We had been tied to that house, which was worth a great deal more than that. And if my father had sold it, he could not have taken the postage with him. And he could have taken, I think he said, a lorry and, and personal belongings, that's all. No goods, no uh, other property of any sort. And he, with four, four children, and he, my grandmother lived with us by that time, with a family of seven to support. And he was so dead keen that we should all have a higher education. He felt he couldn't go through with that. He thought of setting up a chicken farm or something like that, but he would have had no capital to do it. So he turned down the certificate he got. That was in 1936. And decided to stay on and see it through, come what may. And do you remember having... It was the most mistake he ever made. But under the circumstances, he couldn't do anything else. And was there a family discussion about it? Do you remember that or not? I suppose he discussed it with my mother, obviously. But uh, we also had letters from his brother, who was in Palestine at the, day, at the time. And he wrote about all the unrest, the attacks by the Arabs. He was suffering badly from the you know, terrible goings on in, in Israel. There was a lot of fighting and, and attacks and so on. Having decided to abandon immigration to Palestine, there's a new tone in Israel Gold's letters to his brother in Palestine. It's a great pity that the Jews have taken their Galut manners into the Holy Land. A Zionist has to wish that our country will be developed in another way. It's a shame that the land of Israel has towns full of traders, brokers and perhaps exploiters and swindlers. Hopefully our growing youth will become different. It's as if, having turned down Palestine, Israel Gold felt able to criticise something about the growing Jewish community there. And his language is disturbingly similar to that of the Pope's advisor, Monsignor Giuseppe Di Melio. Until recently, Jews have not been eager to go to Palestine. While among Christians... They found it easy to make profits. If, on the contrary, all and only the Jews come together, one has an enormous gathering in of swindlers, while lacking those to be swindled. Classic anti-Semitic victim-blaming there, from Monsignor Di Melio. Who knew what he was talking about? Where the Pope ruled, the Jews were enclosed in ghettos a medieval exclusion which survived in Rome until 1870, within living memory of the Demelios of that world. So what led Israel Gold to use similar language to an anti-Semitic papal advisor? We need to hear the words of Zionist leader Ben-Gurion. He also lamented those who at that time were abusively called Hitler Zionists, Jews fleeing to Palestine from Germany for refuge, not for any Zionist purpose, still fixed in their city ways, indifferent to the task of building a new country. Ben-Gurion called them land speculators and usurers, and those who live off the labour of others, Luftmenschen, impractical dreamers, eager to speculate, living in the air, dangling, sterile and parasitic. So, who needs Demelio when you can have Ben-Gurion, the future Israeli Prime Minister? 
Ben-Gurion uses classic anti-Semitic defamation to characterise the old Jews of the diaspora and the ghetto forced to find survival on the edge of society in the niches where they had been driven for centuries by Christian Europe. Ben-Gurion's drive was to found a state through the sweat of new Jews, toiling on the land, defending the settlements, young, tall, blue-eyed farmers and fighters. A new land would make new Jews. And this came along with Ben-Gurion's insistence that the purpose of Zionism was not to rescue Jews from destruction, but to save the Hebrew nation in its land. To this end, he demanded that Zionist immigration priorities selected pioneers over immigrants, young people over old, those who come to give to the country, not to take from it. Israel Gold must have feared that, at 43 years old, without a practical trade, and with no clear way to support his family of six in a raw settler society, he too might become a burden on the future state. By contrast, even in 1938, after five years of Nazi rule, the facts of Israel Gold's life in Germany remained positive. His family's home was safe, bought 14 years earlier, a secure home for his wife, his mother-in-law and four children, with extra income from the tenants. The children's education continued, now in Jewish schools. Lily was the first in her school to pass the Abitur, Germany's school-leaving certificate, opening access to higher education. As for his fur business, that was thriving enough to draw the attention of the anti-Semitic hate journal Der Stürmer. One day, you know that Nazi hate paper, the Stürmer? Uh, there was one posted up in our street, not far on, on the corner down the road. And my father came home one day and laughed and said, they've put me in the Stürmer. It said that the uh, so-and-so he named the firm somewhere in, in Silesia. This man is still trading with a fur Jew, E. Gould, in Leipzig. Master Furrier Paul Torke of Gleivitzerstrasse in Beuthen, Silesia, welcomes in his business the Fur Jews Galt, Bienenfeld, and others, and trades with them. Torke is a Jew friend and an opponent of enlightening the people on the Jewish question. They denounced him for that in the Stürmer. And my father said, this is the best advertisement for me. And <laughs> has to you know, complain about somebody still trading with me. Anyway, he didn't take it too seriously, whether it affected him or not, I don't know. But that's the worst they could say about him. And his customers remained faithful to him to the end. Well, that may have been bravado, but compared to many Jews in Germany whose livelihoods had been swiftly destroyed by the regime, and many of those had already escaped, my grandfather seemed to have good reasons to stick it out in this Nazi state, where the threats were dark, but the realities were manageable. And besides, there was something quite different about Leipzig. 
My Aunt Rose remembers. He was very popular with all the bureaucrats in that city, and, and the town council, etc. So they used to take him into the, the offices, close the door, and say, but don't go, we need people like you, it won't get any worse, you know we'll protect you. And they reassured him, you see. This was no dissident anti-Nazi subverting the official line. Leipzig's mayor, Karl Gerdeler, was a high-profile opponent of Nazi anti-Jewish policies. Weeks after taking power, Hitler's propaganda minister Goebbels ordered a boycott of Jewish businesses. But Leipzig's Gerdeler appeared in his mayor's uniform in the Brühl, the fur trading quarter, ordering the SA to lift the boycott. Under Gerdeler, Leipzig remained slow to adopt restrictions on Jewish life. Symbolically, under his regime, the city's statue to Mendelssohn, founder of the Leipzig Gewandhaus Orchestra, remained in place. His statue stood in front of the old Gewandhaus right up to the time when we lived there in the 1930s because the local Lord Mayor was the famous Dr. Gerdeler, who was an anti-Nazi. And he, he struggled against the removal of the Mendelssohn statue. The, the Nazis, of course, would have removed it right away, like they removed every Jewish artist and every Jewish uh, uh, memorial from, from public life, you know. Gerdeler knew that to defend Jews was to defend Leipzig's economy, its cultural status and the international reputation of the trade fair. Hitler also knew that by appointing Gerdler in 1934 as his price commissioner, a job that Gerdler had done well under earlier regimes, Germany would be protected from the return of hyperinflation, which could so easily threaten the Hitler regime. So, there was a chain of protection for Leipzig's Jews that led, ultimately, to Hitler. But the chain snapped in March 1937, when Leipzig Nazis outmaneuvered Gerdeler, who resigned to become a leading anti-Hitler plotter. And this is what I resent so much, that they encouraged, they wanted him to stay, and it would have been difficult to go out and... Uh, start afresh somewhere with all that responsibility when there was a possibility that things would improve or not get worse. And this is where he stayed. You see, they reassured him that they really, um, you know, encouraged him to stay on. And yet, Israel Gold's other priority, his children's education, continued to go well. Here's a young Lily writing to a former boyfriend in late 1939. Now, about me. I came here in June on a trainee permit after the worst and craziest half year of my life in Poland. I don't know if you were aware that after graduation, I decided to study medicine and I'd already enrolled in Bologna. Anyway, the race laws in Italy and then our sudden expulsion to Poland thwarted all that. Lily did not often understate her case, but for once you might miss the point of her news about Bologna. 
the world's oldest continuously operating university. In 1732, Bologna had awarded a doctorate to Laura Bassi, the world's first woman to gain a science PhD. Bassi then became the first woman in the world appointed to a chair of physics. Now Lily would be the first in her family to have a university education. She would escape the nightmare of Nazi Germany to study medicine in Italy, at Bologna. It would be life-changing. And my parents had booked me uh, accommodation with one of the professors of the university. I was to stay with them. And uh, I had started some Italian lessons with a private uh, tutor to learn some Italian. My father also learned Italian from the dictionary. I think he knew more than I did. But in the summer of 1938, Mussolini gave in to Hitler's pressure and brought in race laws. The Italians suddenly made a decree that no foreign students may come there any longer to study. I was so set on, on my medical uh, career. Anyway, all that came to nothing. We were not allowed to leave Leipzig. And the next few months were really depressing. We, we were at our wit's end what to do. And then Britain and the USA agreed to stop embarrassing each other to admit more Jewish refugees. Britain would stop demanding America open its doors to Jews from Europe, and the US would stop pressing Britain to allow increased Jewish immigration to Palestine. Instead, they called an international conference at Evian in France to urge the rest of the world to step up to the plate. Based on this diplomatic chicanery by the UK and the USA, the Avian Conference failed spectacularly. Canada's Premier, Mackenzie King, warned that Jews might create a new problem here and lead to intermixture of foreign strains of blood. He sent a delegate only after assurances that no action would be expected. Australia said, as we have no real racial problem, we are not desirous of importing one. Only the Dominican Republic agreed to accept refugees. Hitler saw in Avion that the world lacked the will to save Jews, and that gave him a free hand to do as he wished. Lilly understood Avion as a great disaster for the Jews, which cleared the way for the imminent disaster for her family. She did not understand that Zionism saw Avion's failure as a political success. If the world opened its borders to Jewish refugees, that would fatally undermine the case for Jewish settlement in Palestine. For this reason, the Zionist movement through the words and deeds of Ben-Gurion, Chaim Weizmann and Golda Meir, worked explicitly for the failure of Avian. These are Ben-Gurion's words. I do not know if the conference will open the gates of other countries, but I am afraid it might cause tremendous harm to the land of Israel and Zionism. Like every Jew, I am interested in saving all Jews everywhere where that is possible, but nothing takes priority over saving the Hebrew nation in its land. Our main task is to reduce the harm, the danger and the disaster 
and the more we emphasize the terrible distress of the Jewish masses in Germany, Poland and Romania, the more damage we shall cause. Britain is trying to separate the issue of the refugees from the issue of Palestine. If we allow a separation between the refugee problem and the Palestine problem, we are risking the existence of Zionism. We must see to it that this dangerous position does not find expression at the conference. It would be best for us to minimise the conference's importance. So this quote is saying that we need to play down the distress of the Jewish masses because if that distress is, is emphasised, then other nations are going to feel more pressure to, to allow refugees. That's the point, which would be damaging to the cause. That is yeah. the point. Okay. That is absolutely the point, and it, it describes exactly the way in which he saw that the Zionist representatives at Avian could actually move things in the direction they wanted, namely by shutting up. Yeah, I mean, it's shocking, isn't it? I mean, talk about realpolitik. Uh, it, it couldn't be more closer to the bone. He's talking about his own people, in, in literally his own families back in, in Central Europe. He's not denying that they're in jeopardy. Mm. He knows they are. He is saying we have to choose. We cannot save the Jews of Europe, but what we have to do is to save a future Jewish state. To say we should not scream as loud as we can that now is the time to act, to intervene, to do whatever we humanly can. Yeah. Yeah. He's saying we're, yeah, we're not no, going to shocking. do that. We're going to stay quiet. And we can rely, yeah. and the implication is, we can rely on the prevailing anti-refugee and anti-Semitic atmosphere in the world to do the rest of the job for us. We want Jewish refugees to come to Palestine and nowhere else. Lily was a Zionist, and if she knew that um, that Zionists were working actively to basically condemn her family to death, how would she have felt about it? It must mean that she didn't know. Didn't know or couldn't bear to know. And I wonder if condemn them to death is just too strong. Is it more accurate to say deliberately undermine any hope of rescue? Or is that only avoiding speaking plainly? Because there is an ethical question here. We feel justified condemning Canada and Australia for their failure of human empathy in that refusal to admit Jewish refugees. What should we say about Zionists who, by demanding that Palestine alone should provide Jewish refuge, gave comfort and cover to the likes of Canada and Australia and knowingly abandoned their own people, European Jews, to their fate? There were plenty of Jews in Poland who saw what Zionism was doing and opposed it, none more critically than the Bund and its supporters. The Bund was Poland's Jewish socialist movement. Even in the late 1930s, it was attracting more support from Poland's Jews than Zionism. 
after the Avian Conference's failure to rescue Jews, Bund leader Henrik Ehrlich wrote this. Zionism has become an ally of anti-Semitism. The worsening situation of the Jews throughout the world is exploited by the Zionists. The Zionists regard themselves as second-class citizens in Poland. Their aim is to be first-class citizens in Palestine and make the Arabs second-class citizens. The Bund, therefore, cannot see the Zionists as partners in the struggle against the reactionary forces in Poland. Henrik Ehrlich points to another question. If Ben-Gurion and mainstream Zionist leaders were prepared to downplay the deadly jeopardy that Europe's Jews were in, and to do so at the very place and time where world governments were meeting to respond to this challenge, and to do so knowing, without any need for hindsight, that minimising their jeopardy would surely harm fellow Jews, if Zionism found that tolerable, is it any wonder that Zionism would also find it acceptable to airbrush Palestinian lives and livelihoods from their moral universe. So, we come back to the 43-year-old fur trader Israel Gold and his wife Sophie, both born in Austrian Galicia, settled now for a quarter of a century in Germany, where their four children were born, now aged 18, 16, 13 and 9, they live middle-class Jewish lives in the cosmopolitan and international trading city of Leipzig. But not for much longer. In 1938, 55,000 of Germany's Jews held Polish passports. Some, such as Israel Gold, had lived in Germany for decades, fought for Germany in the First World War, but were refused German naturalisation even before the Nazis came to power. Others, like my German-born mother Lily, had never been to Poland, but held a Polish passport. In March 1938, immediately after Hitler annexed Austria to the German Reich, Poland legislated to revoke the passports of anyone who'd been outside Poland for over five years. They feared a flood of Austrian Jews with Polish passports. After the failure of the Avian Conference... In August 1938, Hitler's Reich enacted a regulation for the expulsion of aliens by force. 55,000 Polish Jews in Germany were now in a legal no-man's land. Very soon, that would become a physical no-man's land. My mother's youngest sister, Dorothea, became 10 years old on October the 28th, 1938, that Friday morning, the whole family was up early, enjoying the young girl, opening her presents. Dolls! Dolls! She loved dolls! What's this? More presents? Their father goes to the front door, opens it. Two policemen stand there. One holds a paper and reads. Sie haben das Reichsgebiet sofort zu verlassen. You must leave the German Reich immediately. I forbid you, without further permission, to return. The Gold family will not be going to Palestine. 
they will not be staying in Germany. They will be marched to the border and forced over into Poland. Nevertheless, to be out of Poland's hell, I don't want to be there again at any price. You've been listening to Keys, A Troubled Inheritance. And this was episode eight. There's information on the whole series and upcoming episodes at mikejoseph.wales. We hope you join us next time.